0: Father, as we now just turn to your word to study, Lord, this final chapter of the book of James, Lord, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Lord, fill us, Lord, with a just a sense of of your presence as we go through this. Lord, speaking to us, convicting us, challenging us, admonishing us, but also, Lord, encouraging and strengthening us. Lord, for the walk that you've called us to walk, this walk of faith. And so, Lord, we just commit this time of study to you now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, this morning we're going to be concluding our study in the book of James. It's been a great book uh, to study. I mean, every book I, I read, every time I study a book, it always just seems to stand out and jump out at me as being the most incredible book in the Bible. There's so much in Scripture that speaks to our lives, to our current situations. Uh, and the way that so often the Lord just dovetails the, the teaching that we're going through to the very experiences that we're having in our lives at that particular moment. And for me personally, James has been like that. I hope it has uh, for you. I hope it's been a blessing for you uh, as we've been looking at these themes that James uh, has been sharing with us. Let's jump uh, into the study. Uh, just an kind of overview just to kick us off as this is the last uh, session in James for now. Uh, just to remind you what we looked at in those uh, opening uh, couple of weeks as we were going through this. Uh, the James shows the importance of our conduct over our creed. So it's really important that we have a creed, that we have, in a sense, a, a set of rules. And of course, Scripture really is that, that set of rules for us, tells us how we should live, how we should uh, be as Christians. But unless it's lived out, unless it's really the way we're living, it, it doesn't mean a lot. It's no good just having a, a standard by which we live if we don't live by that standard. And James really emphasizes that. He emphasizes the the idea of having a behavior you know, it's referred to in this this book uh, and throughout the New Testament as our conversation. It's our kind of godly lifestyle. That behavior has got to be more than just our belief. The belief on its own is important. Of course, we need that belief as that foundation. But it has to be the behavior, the the works that accompany the salvation. And that's really the the key uh, message, in a sense, that James brings out through this study. Uh, and the final thing is again deed over doctrine. It's been said before that you know you can be right, but you can be dead right. You know you can be right so much in terms of what you understand from a theological perspective, from a doctrinal perspective, but you know unless actually we're really living it, unless it's part of our lives. It, it doesn't really have any power. Uh, it needs to shine through in the way we live. And James's epistles, we said before, is intensely practical. It really does hit the the Christian life where we are. It, there's no um, fuzziness to this. Uh, we said already that James grew up in that family with Jesus as an older brother. James at that point didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, only after the resurrection, as Jesus specifically appears to James, does James come to realize who it is he's been living with all this time. And clearly that that transformation in James's life was enormous. Uh, and it's almost like James is saying to us, don't miss the opportunities I miss. James had that that period of his life where he could have learned from and, and studied at Jesus's feet. And yet he rejected him through those those days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And there's almost this underlying um, emphasis here for us as believers. Don't miss out on the relationship that you can have with Jesus Christ. James said, I missed out on that. I, I, I'll never get those days back. And yes, James came to that place of being saved, realizing that Jesus was the Messiah. Ultimately, if we are believers in this morning, we're gathered here. We are believers. We trust in Jesus Christ. Yet we have that that danger of missing out right now on the relationship that we could be living with Jesus, and I think that's really the underlying theme of what James is saying that we should be growing in knowledge and grace. As we said, we we recently studied through the Book of Hebrews, and there was those five warnings in Hebrews about drifting and so on. There's other warnings we looked at. Uh, that just let me just very quickly remind you uh, those warnings we see in the book and again these are just warnings of of not walking as we should walk the first one was drifting the second one was disobedience the third failing to mature the fourth one falling into willful sin and the last one the worst of all is indifference and Hebrews covers those things very well. We looked at that. And this is a great follow on because it's saying, no, you know, we've, surely we've made that decision. We're not going to live that way. We're not going to allow those things to, to be dominant in our lives. So how are we going to live? And James lays out this wonderful template for, for Christian living and gives us the, the how where Hebrews gives us the why and speaks of the wrath and the judgment of God and so on. James gives us the how. This is how we should do it. Once again, in the opening chapter, really we see the uh outward trials and inward temptations compared the trials come from god the temptations come from within um then we go on and we look at those uh, tests of the genuineness of our faith Uh, and the first one really is our response to the word of god and you know we praise god that we have the opportunity to study his word like we do uh what a privilege many christians um just get fed very, very meager meals each Sunday. Uh, we have the privilege of being able to dive into God's Word and, and go verse by verse and see what the Lord has to say to us, uh, the whole Council of God. But response to social distinctions, you know, it's amazing, isn't it? All the, the, the furor, the, 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 the trouble, the turmoil in the world at the moment. Um, and of course, I understand a lot of the issues. I understand and sympathize with a lot of the causes that are being championed at the moment but you know jesus is the answer because in jesus there is no bond or free there is no male or uh, female you know there is no black there is no white there is no color we are all one in christ and the beauty the simplicity of understanding the gospel of jesus christ understanding as we're told in the book of acts that there's not different races you know, the, the the problem is not a, a race problem because we are all the same race. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. He's made of one blood, all men that dwell on the earth. You know, we're, we're all brothers. We're all related. We're all family. That, that's, that's what scripture reveals. That's what scripture tells us. The problem is sin. Problem is is the pride in men's hearts, the arrogance that is built up because of that pride. The problem is, as we're going to see, that men always want to look after themselves and they're happy to put down others to get to some sort of social position or standing themselves. And again, all these these issues that we're seeing uh, in the world right now, uh, you know, Scripture gives us the answer to all these questions. And James, again, has highlighted all of that as re- already as we've gone through. Again, the evidence of good works to accompany faith. We mentioned this a moment ago. But, you know, if we have faith, there has to be good works. If you haven't got good works, then you haven't got faith, is quite simply the argument that James makes. The importance of self-control for a believer. You know, we've looked at the whole concept of taming the tongue. And we talked already, and we'll come back and we'll mention it again before we're out today, uh, of the the flow of influence into our lives because that flow will dictate what comes out. It's from, from, with the, from within, from the heart that comes all these things. So if our heart is in the wrong place or being influenced by the wrong things, that is what will come out in our lives. And, of course, then we see uh, coming into this chapter now the real challenge about what is our relationship to the world? You know, what do we really care about? What are the things that are most important to us in this life? And again, we're going to conclude by looking at the foundation of prayer for a believer. So, so important. Well, again, James uses nature, as we said, to illustrate these truths we've looked at in these just five chapters. Uh, frequent reference to the law. Again, it's called uh, the perfect law, the royal law, the law of liberty and so on. Again, James doesn't teach that we are under the law for salvation or as a rule of life but rather that portions of the law are cited as instruction in righteousness um and i heart hark back to what adrian said a few weeks ago uh talking about the law that the law is there is given for a purpose and of course the law ultimately was there to lead us to christ to show us we can't keep god's righteous standard by our own efforts and yet the things the instructions in the law are beneficial and we do well to, to pay them heed um, and yet we are saved by grace. Again, the portions of the law are cited as instruction in righteousness. That's what they are telling us what God's standard is, how we should be living, how we should be thinking, our attitudes toward others and so on. We've seen already, again, as we've gone through the study, uh, the term brethren or the phrase brethren mentioned 15 times. Faith has been mentioned 15 times. Works 13 and wisdom 4. These are kind of the key words in the book it's been said already that this is the most authoritarian letter in the new testament james is not messing about as i mentioned a moment ago he he recognized he had that time that had been wasted he wasn't going to waste any more time and as he writes to to his audience to these believers and these are kind of often referred to as general epistles although uh this time of course it's written to the uh, to the Jews, but the the Jews at that time largely made up the church. So the introduction just says, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes. Well, that's not in a sense to exclude Gentiles. We're not excluded from this because the church started off as a Gentile body of believers. Uh, sorry, as a Jewish body of believers. Uh, it's later, of course, that the Gentiles, uh, the church realizes Peter gets that vision of the sheet uh, coming down from heaven. And so on, and then the the, the church realizes that actually this gospel is for the whole world. That promise made to Abraham uh, is being fulfilled now through the church, the blessing of God to the whole world. And so these things apply to us. But again, James very authoritative in the way he speaks. These these commands in just 108 verses, there's 54 commands, direct directives for us as believers. It's not well, have a go at this or try this. No, this is how you should live. And, you know, and so often as Christians, we tend to wiggle and worm and try and justify our current situation or the things that we do or whatever. Uh, and James really gets to the heart of those things and challenges them. <clears throat> One commentary uh, that I was looking at, just put it this way, it says, James arg- argues that justification by faith is demonstrated by works. If you truly profess to believe something, your actions will demonstrate your profession. And if you are saved, your life will show it by your works, which is what James addresses in the first two chapters, by your words, which is what James addresses in the third chapter, and then finally by a rejection of worldliness, which is seen in the fourth and fifth chapters, and again we conclude the fifth chapter this morning. So once again, you know, if you are saved, and this morning as we gathered here, I think everyone that's joining this morning, uh, we are saved, we know the love of Christ, we, we've been uh, recipients of his grace, of his mercy, we've received that. In that case, our life must show by our works, by our words and by a rejection of worldliness, the reality of that which God has worked in our lives. Uh, <clears throat> so. Once again, we've looked at this uh, chart, this uh, uh, just idea to convey really what's going on. Uh, the Bible speaks of us being made in the image and the likeness of God. You know, we are made of body, soul, and of spirit. As we said last week, I read that quote from Oswald Chambers: you know, "The body is not wrong in itself. We mustn't have this mindset that the body's wrong. God has given us the body. God created the body." But of course, the body is so influenced by the world and so driven by its passions and by its lusts. And sin has corrupted the natural heart, the natural mind. And so we have this flow into our heart and our mind who we really are. That's the soul. And, and on the other side of the equation, we have the spirit in us. The spirit is our God consciousness. Now, back in Eden, spiritually, we died but when we're born again we get not just a recreated spirit we get god's holy spirit coming and dwelling within us this is phenomenal to try and understand so now in our lives you have the flow of uh, of influence from the world from everything we see and hear and so on and as uh We we read in Scripture the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all those things feeding in one direction. And then we have the things of God feeding in the other. And, of course, we're talking about uh, reading the Bible, of praying, fellowshipping with believers, of celebrating communion, Be reminded continually of what Christ did for us, the price that was paid to purchase us and so the challenge we have is where that flow comes from and we have a, a, a control as to what we listen to of what we do where we put ourselves the influences that shape the the things that then come out and play out in our lives well let's move into the text In the first nine verses then of chapter five uh it could be summarized as the end of injustice Uh, We're going to look at this uh, in a moment. As a springboard into that, I want to take you back to the Old Testament. Now, which uh, character in the Old Testament, this is a question for you to think about for a second, uh, without having a book attributed to him, wrote more of the Bible than Jonah, Amos, Micah, Joel, Malachi, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Habakkuk, Naaman, uh, Haggai, Obadiah, and in the New Testament, Peter and James. So one individual, without actually having their own book or a book attributed to them, wrote more than all of those. Do you know who it was? Well, the answer is Asaph. Okay, This is a, an individual that you read of in the book of Psalms. We're not told much about him, but this incredible character, he wrote Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 through to 83. Okay, So quite a prolific uh, writer of these Psalms. We understand from the things he wrote that he was a prophet. He spent most of his time in the house of God. He fellowshiped uh, continually with God. Uh, and he ministered in the, the house of the Lord from the days of David through to the time of Rehoboam. So David, and then through Solomon, and then Solomon's son, Rehoboam. So again, spending a lot of his life just ministering as a priest uh, in the house of the Lord. This is what he wrote in Psalm 73. And this is our springboard into chapter 5 of James this morning. He wrote this. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now, that's his starting point. He acknowledges that God is a good God. It's so important for us as believers. And and we'll look at this as we see in in chapter 5 as we go in in a moment, that God is good. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 68, God is good and does good. No question, God is good. And Asaph starts with that statement. Truly God is good. And it's so important that we have that foundation because we've got to build on something. Now, if you understand that God is good, your whole view of what's going on in the world will be shaped around that. It doesn't mean that everything that's happening in the world is good, but that God is good. Okay, and then he says this. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. In other words, I'm I was really struggling. I was in a place where I could feel myself sliding. I know God is good. And yet I'm looking around me and I'm seeing things that don't look like God is good. Isn't that experience we have? Isn't that experience particularly a lot of people in the world have? They look around, they don't they, they, they question whether God can be good because they see so many bad things, so much evil in our society today. And verse three, he says this, for I was envious of the foolish. You know, this is, I was slipping into being envious and looking at them, the foolish ones. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, I looked around me. I saw people that had great wealth. I saw people that had riches, the people that were prospering. They cared not anything for God. They weren't living a godly life. They, They weren't going without. They weren't thinking about the poor. They weren't thinking about how they could help other people. They just cared about themselves. You know what, a part of me looked at that and thought, well, why can't I have that? That's what Asaph's saying. And he says, verse 4, For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Just speaking of the incredible blessing that these uh, individuals that are uh, apart from God seem to, to experience. Therefore, pride compasses them about as a chain. That they, they wear their pride as a chain. It's something that they're they're very proud of their accomplishments of what they've done. Kind of that Nebuchadnezzar mindset, you know. Nebuchadnezzar one evening walks around the walls of Babylon, the incredible city that had been built up, and the, of course the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And Nebuchadnezzar's like, "Well, I've done all of this. This is pretty cool. I'm a great king." And that's what these individuals do. They look at what they've amassed. They look at their wealth. You know, so they wear their pride as a change. And violence covers them as a garment. They don't care about hurting others or causing pain or upset. Their eyes stand out with fatness. All they look at is the things that can benefit them. They have more than heart could wish. Again, whatever they set their, their mind to, their heart to, they take it. If they want it, they have it you know if if it makes you happy it can't be that bad i think that's what cheryl crow sang once Uh, and you know that's a kind of a a mantra so much of the world isn't it that if 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 it makes you happy it's got to be all right surely well we read on verse eight they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression well again we've seen so much of that and right now it's been brought uh, to our attention again in the world of, of the 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 wickedness of oppression has existed through the centuries and largely from those that were looking to become wealthy and profit from these things they speak loftily they set their mouth against the heavens they care not for god they're quite happy to speak out against god and mock god and mock those that believe in god and their tongue tongue walks through the earth therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them and they say how does god know and is there knowledge in the most high what they're saying is well so what if god sees or you know question does god even see and if he does see i don't care you know they're just so arrogant towards god these uh, behold these are the ungodly who prosper in the world they increase in riches verily i've cleansed my heart in vain says asaph you know look all the the things i've done seeking after god seeking to live a righteous and godly life You know, has it all been a waste of time when I look at the the things that all these others have got? And I could have maybe had those things myself. He said, I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. He says, for all the day long, I have been played and chastened every morning. What a contrast to these, you know, people that have got everything they want. And now Asif saying, you know, and I haven't got these things. I, I feel that, you know, I'm impoverished in so many areas of my life because I've tried to live a godly life. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. In other words, he acknowledges that's not the right way to be speaking. And then verse sixteen gets this: he says, "When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me." Right? Just the the the, the challenge of the the natural feelings as we look on those who seem to prosper. And we look at our own lives and sometimes how we struggle and the things that we choose to give up for the sake of a a godly life. And sometimes it gets to the point of thinking, really, is this all worth it? Well, we sang that song this morning, worth it all. Yes, it is worth it all. This is the conclusion then that Asaph reached in verse 17. He says, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until... Once again, let me just emphasize, indebted to Chuck Misler for pointing out that the untils in the Bible are always really significant. They're worth marking and worth noting. It makes a fascinating study to go through the untils. Uh, I encourage you to do that at some point when you get opportunity. Um, but he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end so you're saying you know all these things are starting to overwhelm him and he was starting to question the the life that he chosen to live and the apparent poverty that he had in contrast to the great riches riches and wealth of these other people that cared not for anyone other than themselves but he said when i went into the sanctuary of god then it made sense then i understood and says surely thou did set them in slippery places thou castest them down into destruction how are they brought into desolation as in a moment? We'll see James echo exactly the same thought in a second as we look at the, into James. They're utterly consumed with terrors, as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Now, it's really significant because Asaph makes these comments. This is an individual, as I've already said, and the point of making the point I made about the amount he wrote and the Psalms that he wrote, the relationship he had with God, the, the, the frequency in which he was in the temple and so on. He was continually going to God, going into the temple, writing these songs and these, these Psalms of praise and adoration. And he says he still came to that place of questioning until he was again, back in the house of the Lord, brought face to face with God and realizing that god is in complete control that god really is good now I, i say this and i share this at the start because actually we need to understand the importance we have of coming and fellowshipping together because if asaph needed with all of his godliness with the life that he lived if he needed to go back into the house of the lord to understand the world in which he lived how much more do we you know, we need fellowship. We need to be coming together and encouraging each other. Yet you know, we need, as, as frequently as we can, the more as we see the day approaching, to be fellowshipping together, so that when we look at the world, we don't become discouraged, we don't become disheartened. So let's now go straight into James. and We will see James echo those same themes, and he starts by saying, "Go to now, okay? So you know, okay. So this is this is how it is. This is you know what with the." To, to pay attention here you rich men specifically he's going to refer to weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you so james straight away jumping to that kind of conclusion that asaph had done recognizing that although these individuals seem to have so much it's very short-lived they may think they've got it all now but it's so short-lived he says your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you now of course the diligent will recognize that gold and silver don't rust but it's speaking of the rust in terms of the impact those things have on your heart that, that's really the implication here and and the fact that they, they don't bring you the the blessing and the joy and the peace and the, all the things you think they do he says, uh, "The rest of them shall be a witness against you. You shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days." So James is saying, all these people that are wealthy, the people that have acquired wealth, and he'll go on and explain how they've acquired some of that wealth and uh, through oppression and so on. He said it's so short-lived. It's certainly not as something as Christians, as believers, that we should be envying. You see, all through this letter, James has been talking about how we should live. This comparison between the worldly way of doing things and the godly way of doing things. And James is now giving us this reminder. Don't get trapped by these things. Don't fall into them. Be like Asaph. Remember that we need to come back into the house of the Lord. Fellowship uh, with our brothers and sisters. Spend time before the throne of grace so that we're continually reminded that these things do not profit us. Of course, Matthew chapter uh, nineteen, verses twenty three uh, to twenty four, this is where Jesus actually makes this point. He says that then said Jesus the disciples, Verily I say unto you that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now There's nothing in scripture that prohibits believers or godly people being wealthy. In fact, there's a number that we could cite. Job, of course, had great riches to to start with and even greater at the end of his life. And James will refer to Job in a moment. You know, you think of people like Joseph of Arimathea, an incredibly wealthy man. He had direct access to Pilate. That wasn't something that everybody had in that day. He had great riches, great wealth. Solomon, of course, had great wealth. David was a very wealthy man, Uh, and we could go through throughout Scripture many Abraham, three hundred eighteen trained servants that he had, that that were those that that fought for him, and so on. You know, these individuals in, in Scripture were very wealthy. So Scripture doesn't prohibit the acquisition of wealth. The problem is if that becomes the primary focus in your life. See, the, the real wealth is not in the things that we can acquire. It's in our relationship with God. If then we have wealth as well, and we use it for, for God's glory and so on, then that's not a problem. Um, so just get the, the context here. Jesus isn't saying that wealth is bad, but he makes the point that a rich man is going to find it very difficult because those trappings of the world, the temptation to pursue after even greater wealth. See, whatever you have, you still want more. in revelation 18 we get a a a glimpse of what is to come and for those that have great wealth now this is a portion of scripture that speaks of the coming world church and the judgment that the lord will bring upon it and in essence all it is is a rekindling of what has always been since the time of babylon uh shortly after of time of babel shortly after the time of the flood um this um Attempt by Satan, one of the, the threefold stratagems of Satan, to keep people from the the knowledge of God, and he's laid down this smokescreen, this false religion, false religions throughout the world, and they'll all br- they'll all come back together and join back together uh, in the days ahead of us, and they're all starting to do that even now. Uh, and the whole uh, tolerance argument is a big part of that, that we should all be tolerant of each other and kind of work together and love each other and so on. And, you know, this is why Christians are, are so um, um, repugnant to the world, because of the I am, am statements that we've been going through in our uh, verses for the week recently. You know, particularly that the, the statement that Jesus, I am the way, the truth, the life. That, that, that's an offense to the world, because it's saying that every other way is wrong. That There is only one way. And to the world, they don't like that. Well, when we get to Revelation 18, it speaks about this destruction that is going to come upon this religious system. And you'll see this how this ties in with wealth as we read it. Therefore shall her plagues, speaking about this mystery babble on the great, uh, her plagues shall come in one day. Notice how quick this is going to come upon her. Now, up until recently, some of these things may have seemed a little bit fanciful. You read Revelation and some of the things they seem so extraordinary that the question has to be asked, well, could that really happen? Well, who would have thought four months ago the a virus that started in China could have effectively shut the world down? But that's what we've experienced. That's what we've witnessed. The world's economy has crashed because of this virus. Nobody would have predicted it. Nobody has seen this coming to the scale and the extent that we've seen. Well, this is talking about a time yet to come, the, the plagues are going to come in one day. It says, death and mourning and famine. She should be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And then he speaks about the kings of the earth. Now, these will be those who are yet to come to power, 10 kings. Now, whether there'll be 10 regions of the earth to, or 10 specific countries, or however this is going to play out, we'll, we'll see. Time will tell. We don't know the details specifically, but we have the overview. The kings of the earth have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament her when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Speaking about all those that have been made rich and have been uh, given these incredible positions of authority and wealth, whatever, because of their relationship with the false religions of the earth. And this, this one more church is coming uh, standing afar off for fear of torment saying alas alas that great city babylon that mighty city for in one hour there it is again is thy judgment come and then this is the key point james is speaking about the the judgment that will come upon the rich people of the world that suddenly will happen in the last days and here we're told specifically verse 11 of revelation 18 and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. Suddenly, the world is going to be plunged into a situation, uh, even worse than we've just experienced, of utter financial turmoil. And nobody's going to be buying anything. It's going to be a, a really strange situation for the world to enter into. And God is going to allow these things. This is the merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones. And just, just let me just pause there for a second because... You know, all of these things that have been referred to here, I think there's some 18 or so in the list. In fact, let me just read on and I'll pause because it goes on and says, uh, and of pearls, fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet, um, uh, all thy, uh, thine wood, all thy manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood, brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts, and sheep, and horses, and chariots, and slaves, and souls of men, wow, look at what that list encompasses, think what we've just seen, in a glimpse now, by looking at COVID-19, the impact it's had, oil, for example, which was such a precious commodity, and of course, to some degree, still is, but the oil prices have fallen, why, because the demand just disappeared, in the way that it was before, now, of course, that will return, but this is speaking of a time that things are going to be very different. the whole thing is going to crash, the whole system, it speaks of, um, the things you could buy clothing and, and perfumes and all those kind of things that people once wanted but now people have been going out shopping people have been able to go out and buy these things and all the the trading and uh, and the even the the the, the beasts and the sheep and the horses and the chariots i mean it implies there you know the the way the chariots were used in races and so on we think of sport the way sports just been stopped as a result of covid-19 we've just seen a glimpse over the last 3 months of what is going to come and again the warning is against all those that have made themselves rich with the things of this world you know who would have thought that these great wealthy football players would suddenly be in a position where they're they're having to agree to cuts in their salary and all the kind of things now probably none of them are in hardship yet but we would never have anticipated that you know all these things where uh, you see the cruise ships the cruise liners um sure you've seen some of the pictures A load of them were uh off the beach in dorset um because it was they had to pay to go into southampton harbour um so they were mooring off the, the coast of dorset you know, and these places where, where people have gone to, to have these wonderful holidays and nothing wrong in, in that in itself, but all the money that was in that industry has suddenly come to an end. You know, or, you know, again, these things will restart for now, but this is speaking of time when all these things will stop. And it says, And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and godly departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. So speaking of something far worse than we've just experienced is coming. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. You know, the, the money that has been wiped off stocks and shares in the last few months. You know, the, the economic catastrophe that we've been plunged into, and that's only, scripturally speaking, the beginning of birth pangs. This is section ends in Revelation eighteen, it says, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster, and all the company and ships and sailors, and as many as trade by sea, stood afar off. He's talking about an absolute worldwide economic meltdown uh, of these things that are yet to come. Now, again, just to to put in context, the coming one world church is going to become so huge with such authority. It will end up controlling so much of the world's economy that the coming 10 kings are going to feel compelled to get rid of her now trade on earth is going to change dramatically from this point as the world moves from separate democracies into a global dictatorship you see kind of now we're looking for someone to take a lead in this problem that we've experienced worldwide okay and our government i think has done a reasonably good job in this uh, lots of those have been uh, very critical but i noticed those are often that are very critical don't actually have any good ideas themselves um, but th- we're going to get to a point where somebody will step onto the world scene to try and lead us out of this coming problem this will lead on to the the reign the global dictatorship of antichrist let's get back into james it says behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields which is kept which is of you kept back by fraud crieth james is speaking of those that were unjust now in the old testament amos condemned the judges who took bribes and fixed cases and so on that's the kind of things that are going on here it says and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the lord of saboath i'll come back to to that in a second but you know the the whole idea here is that um those that were doing the work weren't getting paid a full salary for it and we see so much injustice in the world if you remember, I said this section really speaks about the end of injustice, and money is so much a big integral part of the the reason we see so much injustice in the world. It goes on; it speaks about the Lord of Sabaoth. It's the, the term itself is speaking of uh, not just uh, the Lord, as in as we speak of, of the Lord, but the one who is in complete control, uh, the Messiah, the King over all things. And it says, "You have lived in pleasure." So let me just clarify that last point. So these things have come to the one who is the judge of all things. The Lord has heard them. You have lived in pleasure on earth and have been wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. So when there's lots of uh animals that could have been killed and feasts could have been had. That's the idea. So you know, he's talking about the feasts that they'd have celebrated. Lived in pleasure on the earth. And you you have condemned and killed the just. And he does not resist you. He's not able to resist you. Speaks again, just of the, this, this want. I I like the, the quote uh, attributed to uh, the Quakers. Uh, This is my friend. Tell me what need you have. And I'll tell you how you can live without it. I quite like that because so often we speak about the things we need. I need this. I need to go and get that, you know, uh, and we use that word uh, quite glibly without really thinking about whether we need things or not. well, Move the point across, and we have so many in the world that claim they need all all these things. Uh, It's all going to come to an end. It's all going to come crashing down. The Lord is seeing all this, the one who is uh, just, who's going to plead the cause of those who have been mistreated. Verse 7, be patient therefore, brethren. And this is the the admonition to us. As we look at all those things, as we see the injustice, just like Asaph, we see these things, and our hearts can be crushed sometimes by the, the things we see that are unjust around us. And as I've said, you know, I had to go into the house of the Lord for it all to make sense to me. And this is why we need to continually be fellowshipping, spending time with each other in, t- in, in God's presence. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. What a great reminder of the reality that this is not our home. This is, again, C.S. Lewis referred to as a shadow land. This is just that place where we're getting ready for eternity. We're told to be patient because Jesus is coming back. Pete started, some of you may have heard this morning, the phrase, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's, that should be our cry. We should be looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord. Okay. So we should just hold on is what James is saying. Be patient. Just wait. The Lord is a faithful judge. He says, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth. Think about a farmer. Think how long they have to wait for their crops to, to, to bear the fruit once they've sown it. It waits for the precious fruit of the earth and has long patience. For it until he receives the earlier and the latter rain. The problem is we live in a culture where everything is instant. You know, we have instant coffee. We have microwave meals. We have everything we want immediately. If we, if we don't get something delivered the next day when we order it from Amazon, we, we get frustrated. There's something wrong. You know, and the world's mindset is, I want it and I want it now. Well... James says, just hold on, learn to be patient. Patience is an attribute that's largely lacking in the world today, but it should be very prevalent in the lives of every believer. And he speaks about the early and the latter rain. Let me just read Psalm 27 verse 14 first. It says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. That's the instruction that we we need to, to repeat to ourselves continually. Wait for God. He will strengthen our hearts. He will help us endure. He will help us wait until that time the Lord comes for us. Now the early rains typically in Israel would be in the autumn time and the latter rains in the springtime. So they would plant their crops and so on and they'd have to wait all through that winter time, waiting for the spring to come months and months and months until the time of the harvest. But eventually the harvest will come. And that's the, the lesson that James is trying to bring to our attention here that we need to wait. The Lord is not going to leave us he's not going to forsake us we have these great promises of his true return but we have to be patient and it says be you also patient just to re-emphasize it establish your hearts for the coming of the lord draws nigh it's getting closer the lord is getting closer and closer to that return galatians 6 9 let us not be weary in well-doing for in due season we shall reap if we do not faint you know, the whole wealth of the world is disappearing. We need not to hold on to those things. I think it's been said before, you know, are we buying things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like? Uh, it's kind of a great little summary uh, of the, the problem uh, so many of us experience in life. You know, and actually, those things of the world, they don't help us. They don't actually bless our lives. Of course, we should be looking for the coming of the Lord. That should be our goal. That should be our hope. And we will reap in due season in luke 21 we read this and when these things began to come to pass then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh and he spoke to them a parable behold the fig tree and all the trees when they uh, now shoot forth ye see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand so likewise when you see these things come to pass and we're seeing things come to pass now before our eyes in this country and around the world verily i say unto you Oh, sorry, know uh, you no, the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation, uh, speaking of Israel, the nation of Israel, shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Israel will not be destroyed. The, that, 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 the, the nation that God accorded to into being, the one that Satan is desperate to destroy, it won't be fulfilled. Uh, d- destroyed until all be fulfilled. This is heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And take heed to yourself, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, with drunkenness, with cares of this life, so that that day come upon you unawares, for as a snare it shall come upon all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Verse nine, we go on. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. Now, James, again, just emphasizing that God is a just God, a just judge. That Lord of Sabaoth, he is the judge of all. And he sees all these things. He sees all the injustice. And then James kind of brings it home and says, you know what? Don't even grumble against each other. Why? Because God is watching. You see, again, the scripture, scripture speaks of Jesus as being the judge of the whole earth. You know, we know that he's coming to judge the church. Not just the world, but the church. Psalm 50 verses 4 to 6 remind us that he's coming to judge those who are his. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 16 speaks upon the, the judgment seat or the beamer of seed of Christ. Two Corinthians as well. Uh, Paul echoes the same theme. 1 Peter 4, 17, we're told that judgment will actually begin with the house of God we did a study some time ago looking at the coming judgment of the church uh, and all that entails but of course God is coming to judge the world god is a just judge just but we can't just look at it in terms of the world thinking oh well, the world's going to get you know their up and comings you know this is applicable to us as well and so James says you know grudge not i love the expression grudge not one against another brethren speaking to us our attitude toward each other you know complaining is such an easy thing to do but to be encouraging, that requires God's grace and God's strength. And we need that. Philippians uh, two fourteen to 16 says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. I'm sure as Paul wrote that in his mind was the murmuring that it had been going on in the camp of Israel back into the wilderness wanderings. And all the problems that murmuring led to the judgments that God brought upon them because of their murmurings, the, the trouble they experienced and so on. But James uh, Paul says to us that we have to do all things without murmurings and disputings. It's not a suggestion, it's not a recommendation, it's a command. As Christians, we're not to murmur, we're not to dispute. We, we, Of course, we're to stand up for truth, we are to expose error, but amongst ourselves, we shouldn't be murmuring, we shouldn't be disputing. And he says that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. This is the world in which we live, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Well, there's never been a time that we need to shine greater than we do right now. Holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. Notice again, Paul's focus is all on the day of Christ, that time when we see Jesus having our eyes firmly fixed on what is to come, not on the present. That I have not run in vain. Neither have labored in vain. You know, again, Asaph more or less saying, you know, have I run in vain? Have I labored in vain when I see the prosperity? For a moment, he almost got, got duped into thinking that was the case. And then he said, but then I went back. I went into God's presence, into the house of the Lord, and it all became clear. And I realized that I had not run in vain, that it wasn't a waste of time, that it was worthwhile. It was worth it all. Again, Paul echoing the same theme. The next section then really speaks about the end of trials take my brethren the prophets just consider them consider the prophets think of those who have spoken in the name of the lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience now we could spend a long time going through the prophets uh we haven't got the opportunity of time this morning but just think of some of them let me just throw a few out that, that i just to me are just heroes of the faith faith one of my favorite is jeremiah i just love jeremiah to bits jeremiah was this prophet who was so unsuccessful He preached and he declared God's word to his nation and they put him down a a big well with miry water at the bottom of it. And they left him there to die. Eventually a few people had an attack of conscience and they bring him out and they lift him out and so on. That man was treated so shamefully. What impact did he have on the nation? Well, truthfully, not a lot. I mean, on us and those sins, big impact. But at the time he wasn't particularly successful. But you see, success for us as believers should be removed from our vocabulary it's the wrong word we shouldn't think of things in terms of success we should think of terms in uh, things in terms of obedience it's not am i being successful it's am i being obedient you know if we're not successful we think something's wrong we start to blame god or question why or or look at reasons why we may not be successful you know sometimes the lord may uh, allow you to go through a time where you're unsuccessful but if that's being obedient to him well, that is the truest form of success for us. You know, learning to be obedient. And Jeremiah was obedient. You yeah, know, Jeremiah got to a stage in his life uh, where he had enough. He got to the point where it was all just just too much. Let me just read to you uh, from uh, from Jeremiah. Just bear with me. In Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah just says this. Righteous are thou, O Lord when I plead with thee. And he says, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. (laughs) In other words, Lord, you're righteous, but can I have a chat? Things don't seem to be quite fair. Doesn't this echo how we feel? Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper? It's the same argument that Asaph used, the same thing that James has been referring to. Wherefore does the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are are they um, happy that deal very treacherously? he says, jeremiah says to god you, you've planted them yeah they've taken root and they grow they bring forth fruit uh, they are near in their mouth and far from their rains. that reigns renal meaning of kidneys kidneys of course uh, bring purification the kidneys are there to purify the blood um, so when you see in scripture particularly king james that refer, uh, reference to reins." It's the same uh, root word, renal, we have in the English, to do with kidneys, to do with purification. So when you read it, and it says in this context here, thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. It's speaking about them being pure. They're not pure. They've just got these boastful mouths. And verse 3 of Jeremiah 12, uh, but thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried my heart toward thee. In other words, Lord, you've put me through the mill. You've put me through trial after trial and i've learned to be faithful i'm trying to obey you lord uh, and he says pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter there you go that's a prophet for you saying lord i've had enough of this please sort them out do something with them how long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither for the wickedness of them see the land was being affected because of the iniquity of the people And it says for the wickedness of them that dwell therein and the beasts are consumed and the birds because they said he shall not see our last end. So speaking of these individuals, again, Jeremiah saying, you know, their iniquity is having an impact on the whole land. And then one of my most favorite couple of verses in the Bible, verse in the Bible, Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5 says this. And this is God responding now to Jeremiah. So Jeremiah moaning, complaining a bit. But God responds with this. If thou hast run with a footman, and they have wearied thee, then how can thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trusted they wearied thee, then how will they do in the swelling of the Jordan? Let me just try and paraphrase that very quickly for you. God says to Jeremiah, if you've struggled trying to run as it were alongside footmen, how on earth would you run if things get really tough, if you have to run alongside horses? You know, the footman, those that would walk along the side of the horse. You know, Jeremiah, you've got to say to Jeremiah, if you found these little things hard, you're moaning about the things you're seeing now. It's going to get far worse than this. How are you going to cope then? How are you going to cope when Christians are persecuted? Now, this is bringing it to our our time, our, our current situation. You know, if we complain about the things now, how are we going to deal when we start to really suffer persecution? When they start saying that we're not allowed to meet as, as congregations if that may come and it may welcome it certainly is the case for many believers around the world you know what happens when they start you know uh, uh, refusing you to the opportunity to speak about your faith in public and if they do if you do you start to get arrested and so on i mentioned last week that individual that bus driver in israel who'd been arrested uh, i think it was on, on tuesday night the prayer meeting i mentioned i think uh, a bus driver in israel had been arrested simply for sharing his faith and now he's at risk of losing his job he was just talking to somebody, answering some questions, and people overheard it, and it's caused all sorts of issues. A lot of people are saying, no, he shouldn't use his job, but others are saying, no, you're not allowed to witness. We've seen it in this country. We, we, as an SUS who was wearing a cross at work, I'm sure you remember the, the story. People working for all sorts of different companies and so on that have witnessed in the course of their work and they've lost their jobs because of it. Yeah, we see those things now. If we struggle now... What's it going to be like when it gets really tough? That's what the Lord says to Jeremiah. And then he goes on and says this. If the land of peace, they're trusted, they, uh, they weird thee, then um, how will they do in the swelling of the Jordan? You know, the Jordan used to overflow its banks and the, the going became really tough in that area. You know, he's saying, if you, if you find this hard, when it gets really bad, how are you going to cope? And, and I love it. I think it's one of the most encouraging verses in a sense, because what it tells us to do is to get our eyes off the problem and onto God. That's what God was really saying to Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes on a little bit later and says, Lord, I don't want to speak anymore. And God says, you've got to speak. Uh, and then Jeremiah speaks of this kind of, th- th- this, the word of God burning within him. You know, he has to to speak and so on. So Jeremiah is just one of these individuals that Je- uh, James says. You know, think of the, the the prophets. Think of those who spoke in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. Um I, I, i'll let you just do your own study looking at some of the other uh, characters in the old testament but there's so many we could refer to uh just incredible examples of hanging in there james is going to give us his own example he says behold we count them happy which endure and you've heard the patience of job and have seen the end of the lord the lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy now job of course you know the situation he started off uh, a wealthy man uh With his children, all blessed, and so on James uh, job used to sacrifice for them daily and just in case they'd sinned, just kind of keep them right and pure with God, and so on and then Satan comes and there's this test that's put into place uh and it's just an incredible account we have in the book of job, but at the end of job's life, job receives back double everything he had of course the the fascinating thing in the book of Job. And we've talked about this before, is that the Job gets back double everything except the children. You see, at the end of Job's life, we read in the, in the book of Job, uh, we're told... Uh, let me just read to you. Uh, the, the, let me just read. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep. Well, that was double what he had previously. And 6,000 camels. That was double what he had. And 1,000 yoke of oxen. He only had 500 to start with. And 1,000 she acid. Again, only 500 to start with. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Now, he started with seven sons and three daughters. So, at the end, we're told that he, he's given another seven sons and another three daughters. Now, if you do the maths, they're not doubled. Okay? He only gets the same number as he had originally. Well, that makes an interesting distinction between animals. And humans. You see, the animals don't have souls. They they were, once the first lot had died, that was it, they'd gone. So they are doubled. But with his children, they have eternal souls. So he ends up at the end of the book with double the number. Because although the first children had died, they were still eternal souls. So he ends up in the light of eternity with double. It's just an interesting distinction. But the Lord blesses Job because of this. And, and James points to Job about somebody who never, ever turned around and cursed God. His wife is incredible. All the things that God takes from Job. You know, he takes obviously all his wealth, takes his his, uh, his children from him, his livelihood, all his friends and so on. You know, he leaves the wife uh, and the wife just tells Job, curse God and die. And Job says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not. You know, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? And Job just trusts God throughout. Job's an incredible character, a lovely study. It was the first book um, that, uh, by God's grace, we had the opportunity uh, when Joy and I first came down to Portsmouth in 2012 to teach through. I absolutely love the book of Job. There's so many lessons in it for us. Um, but once again, Job never gave up trusting God. What a, what a man, one example of, of patience through incredible adversity. And the Lord says to us, probably, you know, you're not going to go through those kind of things. We will never go through. No other human being will ever go through what Job went through. That was very specific reasons. We dealt with that in our study. I think all the studies are online. If you want to dig into that, very specific reason for the, the things that Job went through. And no human being will ever repeat that will ever need to repeat those things again. Nevertheless, we look at those examples and the Lord says to us, they hung in there they endured and now we're being called to endure in whatever situation we go through too but above all things my brethren swear not now almost this seems like a change of of tact here but really it's about being focused about the things we say it's about not trying to um Go off on, on tangents. Let me just read the verse and we'll come back. Uh, Above all things, my brother, you swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into condemnation. You see, the whole thrust here is about the trials we go through. You know, and so many people start to to, to make all sorts of promises and so on. God says, Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Jesus echoed the same thing as well. The last section of the of the book, uh, from verse 13 to 20, is really the end of self. Okay, so we've seen already uh, the end of injustice. That was the first thing we looked at. Uh, Then it was the second one was the end of trials. That's what we just looked at. And now we get on to the end of self. Uh, And then we read here, is any among you afflicted? Well, if we are, what's the advice that James gives? Let him pray. So simple. So it's a simple thing for us as believers. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. But then there's something that's really important. We'll we'll talk more in a second about that. But then James says, is any merry? Let him sing psalms. You see, often if we're afflicted, we will pray. It's often when we're in those darkest times that we go to the Lord. How often is it that when we're in times of blessing, we go to the Lord? But actually, the focus here is we should always be going to the Lord. If we're afflicted, absolutely it's right to come to the Lord to bring our prayers to him. He's a merciful God. We just read that. But it not it, Mary, if, if you're going through a time of blessing, well, then we should be singing psalms. We should be focusing on the Lord. We should be praising him for his goodness and his grace, praising him for the, the blessings that we have. Unfortunately, so often, it's not in the, the times of blessings that we praise him. It's only, or seek him, it's only in the times of affliction. And then is any sick among you. Just through simple instructions here. Now, notice I entitled this The End of Self because this is all about our attitude. You see, if we are being blessed, we need to have that mindset and that heart to keep going to God, to maintain the relationship. But then is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. It's what it's saying subtly there. If you look at the text is there shouldn't be any pride. Yeah, we shouldn't be. Oh, I don't need to ask for help but so often amongst us there's a mindset that well we won't ask we don't want to trouble other people and we we, we wrap it all up but really there's a pride element there that we're too proud sometimes to ask james says no if somebody's sick among you let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the lord now he goes on and says and the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the lord shall raise him up and if he has committed sins they shall be forgiven him notice that if it's not saying that people are sick because they sin, okay, or that all sickness is a result of of people committing specific sins. I mean, in one sense, all sin brings sickness. We see that from the Garden of Eden, that every sickness is a result of the fall. But it's not saying that if somebody gets goes down with a cold, that they've sinned and that's why they've got a cold. If somebody hurts themselves or injures themselves, it's not necessarily because uh, there's sin in their life that they've done that. Um. But it's interesting, again, James says that the prayer of faith shall save the sick. We're told in the opening chapter that when we pray, we should not be like a double-minded man, unstable. We should ask in faith. Okay, so the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now, it's interesting because Paul, you'll see, who had great faith, raised up people from the dead, also had people that he knew that were sick that didn't recover from their sickness. So it's not that every single time we pray, people are going to be healed from their sickness. But there are times that the Lord will do that. And we are to pray. We're to pray in faith, believing. Unless we ask the Lord, we're not going to get the answer. So often we make the assumption that the Lord answers no, so we don't bother asking. And that's not the right way of going about it. We need to be of, of the mind that if anybody is sick amongst us, we pray. That's the first port of call. We go to the Lord in prayer. We bring the elders together and we anoint them with oil and we pray. Now, There's been occasions in my life that I've prayed with people and it's genuinely been that I don't don't know whether the Lord's going to do something here. I don't know whether the Lord will heal, but we just pray in faith because we're told to. There have been other occasions that I've had the privilege of praying for people, and I have known in my heart the Lord will heal them, and I've seen miracles take place. Now, we don't see it all the time. We don't make a big thing of it. So many uh, sections of the church get onto these uh, these miracle services, all these kind of other big things, and it becomes a distraction. And these people away, and there can be all sorts of errors can creep in. But it doesn't change the fact that we are to pray this is just very simply what james is saying to us and this is all about dying to self the end of self getting to that place where we trust god regardless of what we think we know go to god okay so if we're struggling we go to god if we're rejoicing we go to god if somebody's sick we go to god and all these things the lord is pleased with and then confess your faults It's not saying sins. It's not saying that we should go and have confessionals and so on and we tell each other all of our deepest and darkest secrets. That's not helpful. That's not what it's saying. But we should be, we should acknowledge to each other that we struggle in certain areas. We should ask each other to pray for each other because it says, confess your faults one to another and pray one for the other that you may be healed. You see, so often we don't confess our faults to one another because A, sometimes we don't want to, uh, appear like we're struggling because we create this uh, facade that everything's okay with us and so we don't want to let other people know we don't want to let the guard down but also sometimes we're worried about what other people may say well james has already addressed that when he told us very clearly that we're not to to grumble about each other not to have this grudge about each other We're, we're to consider how we see each other how we view each other and saying now confess your faults one to another pray for one another that you may be healed such an important thing we need to be praying for each other we need to have that willingness to open up to each other and to share and then it goes on it says it says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much now i would just highlight that point that it's not just persistent praying that avails much it's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man now what does it mean by a righteous man in the context we know that of course none of us are right with god in that sense by our own efforts but of course through christ we are righteous psalm sixty-six, eighteen, i think is our go-to verse here it says if i regard iniquity in my heart the lord will not hear so you can pray all you want but if you are allowing sin a foothold in your life and you know it's there and you're not dealing with it if the lord has touched you on something and you're not prepared to address it well the lord doesn't hear it's not that he can't hear but you can't come into god's presence carrying a a load of baggage a load of sin on your shoulder that you're not prepared to address but if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we come to God in an attitude of a repentant and a humble heart, not allowing and not tolerating sin in our lives, and we come and we pray as a righteous individual, cleansed and washed by the blood of Christ, all those prayers avail much. And James gives us an incredible example. Elias, or literally Elijah, as we would refer to him, uh, was a man subject to like passions as we are, was just like us. Isaiah, so Elijah got angry, He was happy at times, he got disappointed, he got disillusioned, and so on. But we're told he was just like we are, same kind of person, nothing super special, was no super spiritual giant. He was just a man like we are. But he says this, And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years, six months, three and a half years it didn't rain after he prayed. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now, we read that, and you probably think, well, my prayers aren't like that. You know, I pray and I ask God for things. I don't see those kind of miracles take place. I mean, one, few verse back, we're just talking about praying for those that are sick and they'll, they'll be healed if we pray in faith. Well, you look at this and you think, well, that there's a long way away from our lives, but I just want to bring this into context for us because James just gives us the, the brief summary. We need to just take a, a moment and consider Elijah. Elijah, the Tishbite, we're told. We're not told much about him. Uh Tishbite was a town in northern Israel, from what a lot of commentators suggest, uh, the area around Gilead, around Galilee. His name means Yahweh is my God. Clearly, he would have had godly parents, okay, from that. Uh, he's a major character in the Book of Kings. In fact, more's written about him than about Solomon, if you're interested to know. Uh Mentioned more times in the New Testament than any other prophet, but not quoted because he didn't write anything, which is interesting. He is a prophet but not predictive in that sense he doesn't predict uh or foretell things that god is going to do now there's eight miracles recorded of elijah uh, he stopped the rain for three and a half years, as we've seen. He was fed by ravens twice a day. The grain and the oil multiplying was another one. Uh, raising the widow's son from the dead, calling down fire from heaven, starting the rain again. He ran for 30 miles uh, without a break and is supernaturally sustained for 40 days, 40 nights. So running for 30 miles was a high speed as well, not just a a marathon. It was way more than that. So, Just incredible things. But we're told was just like us. How so? Now, when did he start to pray? Because it says he prayed fervently that it might not rain and it rained not on the earth for three years and six months why did he start to pray is another question we can ask well convicted by god's word and this is the point i want to try and make here that when we pray if we pray in faith it has to be according to god's word you see in chapter 19 of first kings we read there that elijah was very zealous for the lord god of hosts because the children of israel have forsaken your covenant that was what really had riled this godly man, as he looked on what was going on around him, and he was aware that God had given the law, the covenant, and that Israel had broken it. Now, as a man of God he was aware that the covenant had made some specific statements. uh Just from verse one, Elijah the Tishbite, who was the inhabitants of Gilead said unto Ahab as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there should not be dew nor rain these three years according to my word psalm 39 verse 3 says my heart was hot within me while i was musing the fire burned then spake i with my tongue i think it's a great little description of what was going on in elijah's life at this point as he's speaking to the king he's already been praying because he's seen that the land because of the king has turned away from god let's just jump back very quickly to deuteronomy in verse uh, 8 of chapter 11 it says therefore shall you keep my commandments which i command you this day that you may be strong and go in and possess the land whither you go to possess it and that you may prolong your days in the land which the lord swore unto your fathers to give unto them and to their seed a land that flows with milk and honey for the land whither thou goest to possess it is not as the land of egypt from whence she came out where thou sowest thy seed and waterest it with thy foot as a garden of herbs, but the land where thou goest to possess it is the land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven. Okay, so first of all, the land that Elijah's referring to, that he puts his uh, curse on and stops the rain for three and a half years, was supposed to be a land where there was an abundance of rain, so that things would would grow there. Carry on verse thirteen, it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, and to serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain, is what we looked at earlier, that thou may gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil, and I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full, take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them god gives them the warning ahead of time and then verse 17 and then the lord's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit lest you perish quickly from off the good land which the lord giveth you notice what is being said here God is saying very clearly to the nation of Israel that if they followed him and obey him, they would have abundance, they'd have blessing, they'd have rain, the rain would produce the grass, the grass would feed the cattle and so on, everything would go well. But if they broke those commandments, the Lord says, I'm going to stop the rain. So notice it wasn't Elijah that came up with this idea. All Elijah did was responded to that which God had already said and prayed in accordance with God's word. Deuteronomy 28, 23 adds that thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass. That's, that's exactly what happened in the days of Elijah. Elijah prayed according to God's word, just emphasizing the importance of praying in accordance to god's word there's no one else to support and encourage him he's just one man so often we're in these kind of things situations where we feel we're on our own but praying in accordance with god's word can bring incredible results the difference he made was was incredible because you know on his own how could he change the course of the nation What effect could he have had on the politics of his day? Well, none until God calls him to pray. But when he prays, he prays in accordance with God's word and you see the result. And uh, James here reminds us that's how we can be praying. When we pray in accordance with God's word, and again, the underlying thing here has to be that we've got to know God's word. We've got to be reading God's word. If we understand God's word and we pray in accordance with it, we will see God do incredible things in our lives, in our families, in the fellowship, in the country, in this world. The last two verses. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one converts him, let him know that he which converts the sinner from the error of his ways shall save the soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. James, after all the things he's written, just concludes and says, you know, if somebody does stray, if somebody in our fellowship struggles and goes off the path, and somebody helps him back onto the right way, what a bre- blessing it brings. You know, it says that you can convert it to sinner. It's not saving. This is talking about somebody who's already saved. Um, but it's talking about bringing them back into a proper abiding relationship where they will know the blessings of God. Once again, James recognized all that he'd missed out on by not recognizing Jesus during his earthly ministry and he says to us that we have the opportunity of walking with the lord now in a way that will bring abundant abundant blessings and that's even before we get to eternity when we see jesus face to face our lives and james's lives have got some interesting parallels again James's eyes were opened when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Our eyes again will be fully opened when we see Jesus face to face. And we won't need these instructions like we have now because the, the temptations, the things of this world will be gone. But we have this privilege in the days we live to walk with him, to know Jesus, to live a way that is just full of blessing. Not necessarily without trials because we're told those trials will come. But even in those trials, to recognize, recognize God's hand in them, just as the prophets, as we've already seen in this study this morning. So I hope this has been a real encouragement to you as we've gone through it. certainly it has to me. It's been a real challenge. Uh, and I hope that's been the same for you too. By God's grace, next week we're going to start a new study. Uh, we're going to move into the first epistle of Peter. So please read ahead uh, and we'll look at the things that Peter has to say and see what the Lord wants to impress upon our hearts from that. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father... We just ask now for your blessing, for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, help us to understand these things. And Lord, help us to live godly lives. Help us to realize, Lord, that you want to see in us the fruit, the evidence, Lord, of all that you have wrought in us. And so, Father, give us humble natures, Lord, hearts that are willing to submit to you. Lord, help us to get off the throne of our own lives and make sure you are firmly enthroned there. Lord, to be willing to be humble enough to ask for prayer, for help from others if needed, and to make sure we pray for each other. Lord, help us to make sure that we don't get trapped into the illusions of this world, Lord, of the the apparent wealth and success of this world, which, Lord, is all fading away. But Lord, help us to sow to the Spirit and reap everlasting life. We ask all of these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.